In a minute, I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter 1. But before I do that, uh, let me bring you up to speed a little bit. This sermon is entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? Part 28. And if you're thinking, I wasn't here for part 27, 26, what, where did this come from? Uh, this is a 28-year sermon series that I've been preaching at Grace Fellowship on the first Sunday of the year since I became senior pastor in January of 1992. So this is the 28th installment of a message from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And um, the way that this came about is basically this. Uh, in October of 91, I was the youth pastor at a new church plant. And uh, the church was about three years old at that time, three and a half years old. And uh, I was sitting in the church office pretending to work because that's what youth pastors do. They pretend to work. And, um, and I had the office to myself because our senior pastor was up in Idaho preaching at an event up there. And the phone rang, so I answered the phone. And the person on the other end asked for Pastor Cliff, our senior pastor. I said, he's not here. Can I take a message? He said, yeah, tell him that so-and-so called and wanted to congratulate him on his new ministry position in Idaho. I said, I'll be sure to pass that message on. <laughs> I wrote down the message. And then on Monday morning when he showed up at the office, I was waiting for him. And I said, hey, I got this phone message. Can you explain this? And he said, yeah, I, I didn't want to say anything until it was official, but uh, this trip that I was up there, they've asked me to become the senior pastor of a church in northern Idaho, and I have accepted that call, so I'm going to be leaving. Uh, and he said, I'll, I'll stay for the next two months, and we get to the end of the year, I'm going to be taking off. And the leaders of the church decided that the best thing to do would be to have me, the youth pastor, fill in in the pulpit for a few weeks and uh, do some preaching while I was maintaining the youth ministry, and I agreed to do that. Um, but what happened over the next two months was that half of the congregation left um, because it was a church plant, and it was planted by this guy, this charismatic leader that everybody loved and respected and wanted to be a part of his church. And uh, if he wasn't going to be there, they wanted to go back to some other things and do other things. So half the congregation left between the time that he made the announcement and the time he left. And so when he um, left, and on the first Sunday in January of 1992, I was to preach. And my job was to somehow encourage the church, was to somehow convinced the church that uh, this was not the end of the world, that somehow we had a future as a church and we needed to all pull together and work together and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to be honest with you, as I sat in the study that week preparing to preach, I wasn't sure that was true. Because a thought occurred to me that, you know, the church isn't even constituted as a church yet. We're just a church plant. It would be very easy for us to all sort of go back where we came from, and we don't have to do this anymore. 
And I was just really seeking the Lord and, and thinking, Lord, we don't have any money. We don't have any property. We're renting space to meet in on Sundays. Half of our congregation just left. We don't have a leader. I was 26 years old and I was put in charge. And I knew myself well enough to know that was a bad idea. So I wasn't sure that there really was a future. I didn't think we'd probably be there in six weeks. But I was studying through the book of Philippians in my own quiet times. And as I was reading in Philippians chapter 1, I, I ran across this passage. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians 1. Um, if not, you can just listen along. But in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, here's what it says. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And as I read, I just couldn't get myself past that verse because I knew enough from reading the book of Acts about the church at Philippi to know that they had one of the most inauspicious beginnings of any church in history. You had this guy, Paul, who was traveling from city to city trying to preach the gospel, and he went into the city of Philippi. He met some ladies outside who were Jews who were worshiping by the riverside. He told them about Jesus. They went into the city together. There was a girl who was demon-possessed, and in the city square, he cast a demon out of her, and that freaked everybody out. And so they beat him in the city square, and then they imprisoned him in the jail, chained him up to the wall. He and his friend Silas and Paul and Silas are in the jail. They are basically bleeding and bruised from the beating that they had taken. And they're singing praises to God, which is what anybody would do in that situation, right? And, and as they sing, the earth begins to quake. The doors of the jail open, their chains fall off of them, and God delivers them from this imprisonment. Of course, the jailer, whose job it is to keep the prisoners at all costs, freaks out when this happens. He comes running in, and Paul says, don't worry, none of us are going anywhere, we're all right here. And the jailer basically comes and says, what in the world happened? And Paul explains to him about Jesus and the power of God and what God has done. And this jailer becomes a believer. The jailer says to Paul, I want you to come home with me. I'm going to clean your wounds and take care of you. So Paul and Silas go to the jailer's house where they share the gospel with the jailer's family. And his entire family comes to know Jesus that night. So in the city of Philippi, there are these women who've heard the gospel. There is a girl who had a demon cast out of her. There is the jailer and his family that now know Jesus. And Paul leaves that night to run away for his safety. And that's the beginning of the Philippian church. There are no elders. There are no deacons, there are no teachers, there are no prophets, there are no apostles, there are no pastors. There is nobody who has been a Christian for more than six hours. 
And that's the beginning of the church. Now, there's a lot of books out there on church planting, a lot of seminars on how to plant a church. You will never find that strategy in any of them, right? (laughs) But that's how the Philippian church began. And there was no one to lead them. And there was no one who was qualified to take the reins and lead that church into the future. And yet, the Philippian church became one of the greatest churches in the history of the world. And Paul goes on in his writings to commend the Philippian church again and again and again and basically says to the other churches to whom he is writing, why can't you be more like the Philippians? The Philippians have the, they, they, they have the laurel wreath or the crown, if you will, for being the most spiritually mature of the churches that he planted in that whole region. And they started from that. So when he writes this letter back to them, he wants to encourage them. By the way, when I say he wants to encourage them, remember, the word encourage means to fill with courage, right? It doesn't mean to pat on the back and say, oh, you're the greatest when you're not. It means that when you're facing something that needs courage, you need someone to encourage you, to remind you that there is a great God who has a great plan and you're a part of that plan, right? So he writes Philippians to infuse this church with courage, to encourage them. And I'm just gonna tell you right now, I'm preaching today's message for that same purpose. My goal today is not to tell cute stories that will make you laugh, you won't get those. My goal today is not to make everybody feel better about where they're at right now. You won't get that today either. My goal today is to infuse each and every one of us with the courage that it will take for us to go to where God is calling us to go as a church and become who he's calling us to become as a church. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul is doing. And he writes back to them and he says, I am confident of this very thing. That he, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And and when I see that and I think about that, that word perfect, um, it's it's an important thing that we understand what this word means. Paul uses it again and again. He says that God is always trying to perfect us. And when we think of perfecting something, we think of making something flawless. That's not what he has in mind here. The word actually means to make mature or to make complete. So he says, I'm going to perfect this work that I've begun in you. I'm going to make this work complete. I'm going to finish what I started, God is saying. I'm going to help you become mature. The other thing you have to understand about this verse is that when he says that I'm going to do this good work in you, the you is plural. He's not speaking to each individual. He's speaking to the group as a whole. He's saying that as God grows each individual in this church, he's going to complete and mature the whole congregation. And as I was reading in 1992, the New Year's of 1992, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I was thinking, we're in so far over our heads. There is no hope for this church. There is no way this church is going to move on. I mean, how can a church be planted and then have its leader take off after only three and a half years? And God showed me a church that flourished when its leader took off after like three and a half hours. And I said, you know what? I think God's speaking to us here. And so on that morning, 
I open up my Bible and I preach from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a message entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? It wasn't called, Where Do We Go From Here, part one, because I wasn't sure there'd ever be a part two. (laughs) And today I preach part 28, because our God is an awesome God, because our God is a faithful God, because our God is a powerful God. God, because our God is a perfecting and maturing God, and he does the great work that he sets out to do. So the Bible has a lot to say about if God's going to mature us, how he's going to do that. And the whole focus of this message is grace fellowship. God wants to mature us. He wants to take us from where we are each one of us individually and all of us corporately. He wants to take us from where we are, wherever you might find yourself in your spiritual journey today. He wants to take you from where you are and make you mature. He has a vision in mind for you. He has a vision in mind for us that is the fully formed version of us. And to do that, we need to be infused with courage because it's not easy. It's stretching It's difficult. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about how God matures us. I'm gonna give you some examples. Turn to the book of James, which is at the back of your Bible after Hebrews. And find James chapter one, if you will. And let me just read to you. I love the book of James because James doesn't pull any punches. He's not afraid of stepping on toes and he doesn't mind if he hurts feelings as long as people grow. And that's kind of the attitude that I have today as I preach, so bear with me. Here's what he says. James, a bondservant of God, James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greeting. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. He says there's going to be trials, and not only are you to accept those trials, but you need to rejoice when those trials come because it's through those trials that God matures you. It's through those trials that God makes you perfect and complete. Now, the book of James is my favorite book in the Bible. I have preached through it countless times over the years, and I always do the same thing when I get here to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I always say this, raise your hand if you would like to someday be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? Okay. Now, raise your hand if you would like to encounter various trials. See, none of us wants it the way God designed it. But he tells us this is how it is. He says, I'm going to make you perfect and complete. I'm going to make you fully formed. I'm going to make you mature through trials. And some of you have spent 2018 going through some choppy water. Some of you have experienced some really tough stuff the last few weeks, the last few months, the last few years. And, and I don't want to make light of what the trials that you've been going through. I just want to encourage you by reminding you that those trials God intends to use so that he can make you into the version of yourself 
that he designed you to be. And if that's what he's doing in our individual lives, then that must be what he's doing in our life corporately as a church. Now, now go over to Ephesians chapter 4. If you just turn to the left from James, uh, it's after Galatians and before Philippians. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul is talking about how God has gifted the church for ministry. And here's what he says. Ephesians 4.11, he says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. In other words, God has gifted the church with gifted leaders to lead it, right? And then he says, why has he given them those gifted people? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints, by the way? We are, okay? Don't get a crazy picture of saints as like icons in the, in the church wall. Saints are followers of Jesus Christ, okay? So when he says, it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up or maturing of the body of Christ, which is the church, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is our head, even Christ. He says, God expects all of us to do the work of the ministry. And in that process, he's going to grow us up so that we're no longer children that are susceptible to being knocked over by every false teaching that comes along, but that we actually become mature and we carry out the ministry that he's given us. Now, back to the back of your Bible. After James, you're going to find the books of Peter. Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, I should have done 1 Peter after James. It would have been easier. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to read to you verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In other words, stop doing the stupid stuff you've been doing, he says, okay? There's some stuff that needs to be put aside if we're going to grow up. And, and he gives us an example of that, the slander and the malice and the deceit. He says, put all that hypocrisy aside, no more of any of that. And then here's what he says in verse two, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He says, part of what's gonna grow you up Part of what's going to make you strong, part of what's going to make you mature is the Word of God. You've got to feed on the Word of God. You've got to hunger for the Word of God. You've got to long for the Word of God the way a newborn babe longs for his mother's breast. You are to long for the Word of God to where you can't get enough of it. Now, let's go back to one more passage, Colossians. If you go back to where Ephesians was, it goes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled 
with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, he's saying my prayer for the Colossian church is that they will be marked by wisdom and understanding. Okay, verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he's saying, I'm praying that God will give you wisdom and understanding so that you can actually live differently, that righteousness marks your life, that you bear fruit in the things that you do. You're not just wasting your time doing frivolous stuff that doesn't have eternal significance, but that you would live a life that bears fruit, okay? So we could go on and on, but the Bible has a lot to say about how God matures us, trials, the word of God, godly leaders who lead us, um, and, and uh, living out things and putting them into practice, putting off things, all of these are a part of the maturing process. There's a movie out a long time ago, my kids were young, called Madagascar. Do you just see this movie, right? It's a cartoon. And it's all about these animals who live at the zoo. They're really African animals, but they're there in the New York Central Park Zoo. And, and the movie opens up uh, with the, the camera, if you will, in a cartoon. The camera is on the zebra who's running. And you see the zebra running, and he's running. And in front of him is this, this open uh, African wilderness, right? And he's running, and, and then as the camera pans back, you see that he's on a treadmill, and the wilderness is painted on a wall in front of him, right? He's running on a treadmill. And then the lion pops up because it's the zebra's birthday, and he says, happy birthday, and they have this whole conversation. And the, the zebra says, I'm, I'm 10 years old now, which is apparently a midlife crisis time for a zebra, right? And he says, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, listen, I'm 10, half my life is behind me, and I, I just, I feel like there's just something in me that is greater than this, like I'm running on a treadmill. This, I, I feel in my heart of hearts like I was created for something more, not just a picture of the wilderness, but that I had to be running in that wilderness. And the lion goes, I don't know, they bring me meat every day, it's kind of great here, you know? <laughs> And, and essentially, the, they have this conversation, all the animals get together and they start to long for the wilderness. There's something in their heart, there's something in their DNA that says we were made for more than this. We're made for more than where well, there's just someone who comes and feeds us and there's someone who grooms us and there's someone who takes care of us. And the lion says, yeah, but on the field trip days when all the kids come, I get up and roar and all the kids clap for me and that's really cool. You know, and then the zebra's like, yeah, but don't you feel like we're made for more than this? And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I feel like this is a picture of so much of the American church today. It's like, it's like the church, the, the mindset that so many of us have of the church today is that the church is this place where Christians live, where someone comes and feeds them, and someone comes and grooms them, and someone comes and takes care of them, and someone makes sure they're safe, and somebody, and they're just sort of fenced in. But there's something in us as Christians. The Holy Spirit lives in our heart and our spiritual DNA. Our heart just beats and says, this is not all there is. 
I know that God made us for more than this. And yet, the, the system, the way we've designed, it's like a zoo that we're all just sort of stuck in. And we know that if we just show up at the right time when the bell rings, they'll feed us and they'll take care of us. But if we had to live in the wild, I don't know if we could make it. There's so many Christians, people filling the pews of churches every Sunday who have never in their lives fed themselves from the word of God. And I think we should be concerned about that because God's word says that we're meant for so much more. It's in our DNA to actually live an adventure with Christ. We're here on a mission, not a vacation. And this life is not something that we're just supposed to endure until we finally get to heaven. We're created and empowered by God as Christians for so much more than the comfy confines of the zoo. God's not called us to build magnificent zoos. He's called us to advance the kingdom of God. And I want us to be focused on what we're really supposed to be about. So I get concerned that all of us as Christians in America, that, that if we're not careful, we could miss the whole point. Beautiful buildings and great music and terrific programs for our kids and entertaining sermons and wonderful preachers and all kinds of resources. And the result of all that, if we're not careful, might just be that we become a bunch of fat little zoo animals who can't take care of ourselves and can't live on the mission that he called us to live on. There is a difference between a tour group and a mission team, right? I mean, they both go to Africa, right? Group of people, they, they pay some money, get their passports, they join a tour group and they go to Africa and, and they have guides that take them wherever they want to go and they get their three meals a day and nice comfortable places to uh, eat and they have security guards around them and when they go out to take pictures of the animals in the wild, they're protected and, and they get to just have a great time and they get to come back and show people their pictures and go, I went to Africa, I've been on those tours. It's, it's, it's awesome. But that's very different than when you go to Africa on a mission team. And when you go to Africa on a mission team, there's a chance you're going to be living in a hut somewhere. There's, there's a chance that you're going to be in danger sometime. There's a very good likelihood that there's not going to be anyone there whose job it is to make you comfortable, but you're not going to judge the trip by how comfortable you were or how many nice pictures you got. You're going to judge the trip on whether or not the kingdom of God advanced. There's a difference between a tour group and a mission team, and God has called us to the adventure of being on mission with him, not being a tour group that's touring Christianity. And the sad truth is that some of us rarely, if ever, feed ourselves spiritually from the word of God. The truth is that some of us never share our faith in a clear way with anybody who doesn't know Christ. The truth is 
that some of us don't know from experience what it's like to depend upon God when you're not sure there's a way to make it through if God doesn't come through for you. And, and when I say some of us, I'm talking about the people in this room, the people in this congregation, and the people who name the name of Christ in this country. There's too many of us that fit those categories. And if you're a brand new Christian and you've never fed yourself from the Bible, that's okay. If you're a brand new Christian and you don't have experience of sharing the gospel with people and leading people to Christ, that's understandable. But some of us have known Jesus and walked with Jesus and been in the church for two years, five years, 10 years, 40 years, 50 years. And this is true of us. And that makes us zoo Christians. And all I'm trying to say is that's not what we were created to be. God has a vision for us that's greater than that. In the movie, as the movie goes on, you, you have to watch it, but as the movie goes on, with the help of some industrious penguins, they make their way to Madagascar. And they find themselves in Africa, and there they are in the wilderness. There's a hippo and a giraffe and a zebra and a lion, and they're there in the wilderness. But that lion is still kind of like missing home. Like, I would, who's, who's bringing the food? He doesn't get it, right? And the zebra takes him out for a run in the, in the tall grass. And they go out for a run. And the lion's like, I'm tired, you know. He's just kind of loping along. And the zebra's like, come on, who's the lion? Come on, who's the lion? Who's the lion? And he's encouraging him. And the lion goes a little faster and a little faster. And finally, the lion hits his stride. And he just takes off. And he gets this look in his eye. And he lets out a roar like he has never let out before. And he gets this look in his eye. And he turns and looks at the zebra like, he's a piece of meat (laughs) and you kind of go yes that's what he was created to be right and it wasn't until he gets there that he experiences that I think some of us if we're going to really grow and mature we need to get outside the safe confines of the zoo and we need to actually start running in the wild we need to share our faith We need to get out into the mission field. Some of us need to sign up for a mission trip and go somewhere where we will be scared, where we will be uncomfortable, where we will not be in control, but where we'll be depending upon God. Some of us need to get into the word on our own. We need to devote some extended time to prayer and fasting. We need to give more than we think we can afford to give. We need to volunteer for something that might just change the world. That's what we were made for. And if we stay in the zoo, we will be comfortable and we will miss the point of our existence. We're never going to be mature sitting in the zoo. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says that each one of us was given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one of us, speaking of Christians, to each member of the body of Christ, it says, you are given a manifestation of the Spirit. And I love the word manifestation because 
the manifestation is when God makes himself known, right? It's like if someone was hiding behind a bush and they jump out, that's when they manifest themselves, right? And, and he's saying that the Holy Spirit is inside of believers waiting to manifest himself through us. That is to say that as we do the work of the ministry, as we share the gospel, as we love on our neighbors, as we get involved in, in uh, all kinds of service projects, that the Holy Spirit is going to actually come out in a way that when people engage us, they will know they engage God himself. That's exciting. He's given every member of the body of Christ that manifestation, not just the leaders, not just the upfront personalities, but each one has been given that manifestation. And we will never be mature and we will never be complete as a church until each one of us is living the adventure of that manifestation. How many of you are parents? Raise your hand if you're parents. Okay, so... So if you're a parent and you've raised children, you know this. There is an age at which it is perfectly appropriate and necessary for you to do everything for your kid, right? You've got to feed them with a spoon. You've got to change their diapers. You've got to dress them. You've got to bathe them. You've got to clean their room, put their toys away. You have to do all that kind of stuff because they can't do it, right? And when your kid is six months old, that is perfectly appropriate. But when that same kid is six years old, and you're still feeding him with a spoon and changing his diapers? That's called abusive parenting, right? And when he's 16 years old and you're cleaning his room, the problem with that is that one day soon, he's going to leave the zoo, right? And you know that. And when he gets out on his own, he'll be looking around for someone to cut his meat, And I'm, I am concerned. I feel like I should be preaching this sermon to a, to a pastor's conference. I don't know how much you guys can do about this, but bear with me. It's on my heart. I am just concerned that too many of us who are leading the church are just realizing that people will come back if you just keep spoon feeding them and changing their diapers and entertaining them. And that we're not preparing people to be disciples of Christ who make disciples of Christ. And if that's the case, the answer to the question, where do we go from here, is absolutely nowhere. And I don't want that to be the case for Grace Fellowship. God wants us all to grow up. So wherever you are today in your walk with God, you may be a brand new believer. Maybe you don't even uh, have a personal relationship with Jesus yet, or maybe you've become, been a Christian for just a few months or a few weeks or a few years. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Maybe you're an elder in the church and everybody looks up to you and respects you as an example of godliness. Wherever you are in your life today, God wants you to grow from there, starting now. And I want to encourage us so that we don't miss that opportunity. Because as each one of us begins to take responsibility to grow up, we're going to find that we're growing as a church as well. And when I say growing as a church, I don't mean there'll be, there'll be you know, more numbers of people. Maybe there will. 
I mean that the people that are here, however many they are, will be growing and the church will be making an impact. Let me try to give you a picture of what I mean. And I, I, I could talk about this forever, but I'm going to just narrow it to two things that I mean when I say what, what it would look like if the church grew up. Number one is making disciples. See, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, it's a familiar verse. You don't even have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you real quick. But in Matthew chapter 28, these are the last words that Matthew records coming from Jesus before he ascends. He says this to his followers. He says, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. By the way, why do you think he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth? I think what he's trying to say is, what I'm about to say to you comes from a place of authority. This is a command. Do this. Don't slough it off. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's no big deal. I have all of the authority in the universe, and I am here to tell you this is what I want you to do. That should be the point in which our ears come forward and we start listening, because he's going to hold us accountable for this. Here's what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is our mandate, church, from Christ himself. This is our marching orders, if you will. This is what we're supposed to devote ourselves to, making disciples. And the first question that should then come to our mind is, okay, what do you mean by disciple? If I'm supposed to make disciples, what are disciples? A disciple, quite simply, is someone whose life is defined by his relationship with Christ. A disciple is a Christ follower, someone who acts like him, someone who believes like him, someone who thinks like him, someone who serves like him, someone who sacrifices like him, who prays like him, obeys like him, cares like him, worships like him, washes feet like him, gives sacrificially like him, puts others first like him, talks like him, and walks like him. That's a disciple. You see, the mandate of the church is to share the good news of Christ with people, help them to come into a personal relationship with Jesus, baptize them in response to that personal relationship, and then help them to live the real adventure of Jesus Christ that he designed us to live. Let me give you an example. Jesus chose 12 men that he would invest in for three straight years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he did pretty well. 11 of those men made it to the end. And of those 11 men, on top of them, there was 120 people in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 on that first day when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church on the day of Pentecost and the church was born. So, so 11 guys, and they learned to think like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to care about what Jesus cares about. 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit, and they learned to wash feet like Jesus, to, to care for people like Jesus, to serve others like Jesus. And, and those 120 people were the beginning of the church. And I ask you to think about this horrific idea. What if it stopped with them? What if they were the best Christians ever, but the only Christians ever? 
See, we have to remember something. 2,000 years later, if you're a follower of Christ, it's because they made disciples who made disciples who made disciples who made disciples who made disciples and so on and so on for 2,000 years. And if that was not the case, there wouldn't be a Christian in the world today. And now the, that that disciple-making mandate, the torch of making disciples has been passed to our generation of believers. And it is our mandate to keep making disciples who can keep making disciples. In our little Christian zoos, though, too many people who name the name of Jesus are content to just sit back and eat what they're fed. And, and let the professional zookeepers do the other stuff. And that's not the point. Every one of us is supposed to be a walking, talking manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be building relationships with lost and hurting people. We are empowered to touch lives in such a way that healing and transformation takes place. And we are called to help those believers go where God is calling them and become whom God is calling them to become. And yet some of us are still sitting back and we're not going where God has been calling us. And we're not becoming whom God has been trying to make us. And we've been living as if this life is more important than life. And as a result, we don't see these generations of on-fire, spirit-filled, word-fed believers who are ready to go out and change the world for Christ. And if coming to church has been enough for you, my prayer is that we'll never be enough again. Being a disciple is not about coming to church. It's about being the church being the hands and feet of Christ in a broken world, being the voice of truth in a world that is bombarded with lies, being the light of the world that is shrouded in darkness. And that brings me to the second point, and I'll, and I'll wrap it up. We are the light of the world. And I got to tell you, I struggled a little bit with exactly how I wanted to say that because I, I wanted to sort of say we're supposed to be the light of the world. The only thing is, the Bible doesn't say that we're supposed to be the light of the world. The Bible says we are the light of the world. That means whether we're good at being the light or not, we are all the light this world is gonna get. We're it. The, the old saying is that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. We are the light of the world. And so we, we need to be humble enough to sort of look in the mirror. When we see a world, you do not need me to sit here and lecture you with statistics about how broken and dark the world is, right? We understand that the world that we live in is a dark place. And yet, it is so easy for us in our little zoos to sit back and curse the darkness when we are the missing light. See, the world's not going to get lighter because we elect a great elected official. 
The world is not going to get lighter because the economy improves. The world is not going to get lighter because everybody came to church and put a little bumper sticker on their car. The world is going to get lighter when the church starts to shine with the glory of Christ and the darkness gets pierced with the light of the church. And so whatever darkness there is in the world, we have to own that because we're the answer, the only answer that God has given. In Matthew chapter 5, it's the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, you know, he has already said, I am the light of the world. He said that about himself. I'm the light of the world. But then in Matthew 5, here's what he says. You are the light of the world. And he goes further. He says, so why don't we stop putting the light under a bushel and why don't we lift the light up and put it on a lampstand so that the darkness will actually go away? Guys, if we're going to really grow and become mature, not only are we going to have to take discipleship seriously in our own lives and in making other disciples, we're going to have to take our responsibility as the light of the world more seriously. And you know what that means? That means we have to be the church when we're not in this building. We have to shine on the job site, in the office break room. We have to shine in the classroom or on the playground or wherever it is that we're with our peers. We have to be people who actually put on the heart of Jesus before we walk out the door in the morning because every day and everywhere you go, there is darkness that needs the light of Christ and you're being sent to that place. You think you go to work every day because that's where you get your paycheck. You don't go to work for your paycheck. If you're a Christian, you go to work to bring light into the darkness. That's why we go. And we got to put on that mindset because we can keep putting on and we will do the best we can at Grace Fellowship to have good programs and good preaching and good music and nice buildings and great facilities and great resources. All of that is good stuff as long as the church is not living in the zoo. As long as we understand that we got to get out and be the light of the world. Following Christ makes you a disciple. Somewhere at some point, somebody made up the idea that there's a difference between a Christian and a disciple. And I'm here to tell you, I have read my Bible cover to cover, and there's no difference. According to Scripture, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. You don't get to just be the kind of Christian that sort of gets their fire insurance signed by Jesus, you know? I'm not going to go to hell now, and I believe the right things. And I come to church sometimes. That, and, then, and then there are other people who are disciples. I mean, they're the ones that are like seriously living sacrificial lives and they read their Bibles every day and they study and they pray and they witness. That, there are not two categories. A Christian is a disciple. If we are not disciples, we are not Christians. And we have to understand that. 27 years ago, I stood before that congregation, just a tiny smattering of people for the first time as their senior pastor, and my knees were knocking. As I looked out upon that small group of people, I wondered if there would even be a church in six weeks. We'd lost our leader. We didn't have any money. We had no idea what we we're going to do next. And we we're being led by a wet behind the ears 26-year-old who did not have his act together. But I stood before that group and I read from Philippians 1 about a God who was willing to be our leader. 
about a God who has all the resources that we would ever need and about a God who had a vision for us as a church that was so great that he promised that he would complete the good work he had begun in us. And a lot has happened since then. This church has become healthy. This church has become a world-changing congregation of people who are committed to loving God and loving people. We have seen countless people over those 30 years come to Christ. We have trained up so many disciples who became leaders in this movement called Christianity who are now spread out across the globe who are, who are leading people to Christ and making disciples and being light wherever they go. Decades of answered prayer, decades of changed lives, decades of transformed marriages and godly children who've been raised up by godly adults, hurting people who've been healed. For decades, I've been privileged to watch it happen. This has been the best church I have ever known. But that's where we've been. The question is, where do we go from here? The answer is we build relationships. And it begins with our relationship with God. It begins with the question of what kind of disciple am I? And it begins where I begin to take responsibility for feeding myself, where I take the resources that are made available to me and I put them to work in my own life, where I begin to grapple with the things that the Lord has been knocking on my heart about for a long time and I keep pushing him away and pushing him away. It means that I become a more mature follower of Jesus. I work on my relationship with God. It also means I build relationships with others, new relationships. You know, most of us don't know our neighbors, deeper relationships, people that we have close friendships with who are, who are Christians, and yet Christ doesn't enter into the relationship. We don't talk about our spiritual lives. We don't pray for one another. We don't encourage one another. We don't challenge one another. Disciple-making relationships. And we're gonna talk about this. Don't miss the family meeting. We're gonna give you some resources that are gonna blow your mind, the likes of which you have never seen, that are gonna help you with some of this. The answer to this question of how do we become these mature Christians is that we find new and better ways to let our light shine for the glory of God by reaching out to those who are outside of these walls, by meeting practical needs for people, by meeting spiritual needs for people, by giving sacrificially, by putting others first, by serving rather than expecting to be served. Remember, some of you are old enough. Do you remember uh, January 1961? A young, dashing President Kennedy stood at the inaugural podium and he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Guys, that perspective should be our perspective as Christians. Ask not what the kingdom of God can do for you, but ask what you can do for the kingdom of God. And, and if we could just change our mindset by going into dark places that don't feel that safe, when we would rather run to our comfort zones, but they need the light that only we can bring. Simply put, we change the world by loving God and loving people as we embrace this incredible journey called Christianity together. That's where we go from here. Part 28. If you're with me, stand up and we'll pray.
Father, we want to thank you that you have loved us enough to let your light shine upon us. We thank you so much that uh, you've given us your word, that you've given us your spirit, that you've given us the faith to believe and helped us to walk in salvation. We thank you, God, that you have a vision for our lives that is greater than what we are all settling for. And I pray that you would, you would motivate us, encourage us, spur us on with that vision, and that we would long for the maturity that you offer us the way a newborn child longs for his mother's milk. Father, may we be the disciples. May we be the disciple makers. May we be the light of the world. And may you receive all the glory. As we enter 2019 together, make us disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.